0: Please pray with me. God of grace, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So if you were here last week, you may have noticed that our scripture reading this morning is a repeat of the scripture from last week. Only I cut off the beginning verses from last week and started us partway through uh, what we heard last week. So on this third Sunday in the Easter season, we continue with Scripture telling us the story of the events of that first Easter day. After working with the Scripture last week, I didn't feel quite done with it. My sermon last week went in the direction it went in, and that direction didn't say a word about Thomas— and his refusal to believe that his friends had seen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Thomas said he wouldn't believe it until he saw it with his own eyes. Jesus makes another appearance, and this time Thomas is there, and Thomas believes. And the scripture passage tells us that Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Unfortunately, countless preachers have said that the moral of the story is that people are supposed to have faith without evidence. And actually, I don't think that in itself is the unfortunate thing. What's really unfortunate is that an additional layer of meaning is often added on to this an additional layer that suggests that we are supposed to believe things that contradict evidence, believe things that contradict what we do or do not see with our own eyes. We see things with our own eyes all the time that shape and impact our faith. There's nothing wrong with that. But as with love or hope Faith is something that cannot adequately be determined only on the basis of what we see with our own eyes. So the flip side of that, the idea that what we do not see with our own eyes is a reason to have no faith, that, to me, is a problem. Faith always includes a mix of incorporating what we see along with mystery, along with those intangible things that contribute to our sense of wonder and awe. So maybe Jesus isn't scolding Thomas when Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Maybe instead of a scold, Jesus is offering an invitation, an invitation to experience faith as mystery rather than certainty. The writer of John's Gospel was writing decades after the resurrection, writing to people who had never known Jesus personally and never seen an appearance of Jesus after the resurrection. Maybe this writer especially wanted to invite his audience, which includes us, Maybe this writer especially wanted to invite his audience to be included in the community of Jesus' followers, even though they hadn't personally walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus. I read a piece a couple of weeks ago that encouraged pastors to be poets rather than theologians or philosophers. This particular essay was written in and for Holy Week, so it's talking about Holy Week, but I think the basic point applies every week. The writer said this, In Holy Week, even the world's worst poet is better than the world's best preacher. This is because our theological language, the language so often used by preachers, falls short. It can even get in the way. Poetry, on the other hand, can do wonders for capturing our imagination. Poetry can somehow express those things that are so difficult to put into words along with poets, I think sometimes storytellers are best at conveying the truths of faith. The writer of that essay goes on to talk about theological prose and to contrast that with poetry. I think that when Thomas told his friends he wouldn't believe there was new life for Jesus unless he saw his wounded teacher with his own eyes in saying this, Thomas was dealing in prose. Preachers who try to convince people that faith requires us to believe things that contradict what we see with our own eyes or don't see with our own eyes, these preachers are dealing in prose. I would like to make a case for poetry instead. It appears that Thomas was seeking certainty. Many people seek certainty from religion. We hear this in the voices of religious people who say they have the right answer, that their religion has the right answer. You can find these people in any religion. The voices of people who seek certainty from religion are all around us. But religion also offers something else. Alongside the strains of Christianity that have sought certainty or right answers, there have always been strains of Christianity that have embraced mystery. John's gospel begins with a mystery. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. This is the same gospel writer who gives us the story of Thomas. So in John's gospel, we have on the one hand Thomas, who seems to seek certainty, And on the other hand, we have this poetry. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have this poetry, which far from offering certainty, requires interpretation, and leads naturally to multiple interpretations. Our Christian tradition is rich with mystics and contemplatives, who encounter God's spirit in ways neither tangible nor pragmatic. Our tradition is rich with those who listen for the still, small voice of God, those who traverse the long, dark night of the soul, those who feel more awe than certainty. This isn't always easy for humans. Being uncomfortable with uncertainty is very human. We will all have days when, like Thomas, we wish we could just see and touch God so clearly as to erase any doubt. But I am convinced that living with honest uncertainty is very faithful. It is faithful to the nature of a God who is beyond human understanding. God is God. God cannot be pinned down by even the best theology. God cannot be fully known or fully understood. God cannot be contained. I've been thinking about all of this in the context of welcoming new members into the church. We are welcoming you today, not to a set of right answers or a path of certainty, but to join in exploring a sacred mystery. We are welcoming you today into a community not only of prose, but of poetry. Church membership is a reaffirmation of the baptismal covenant, When you join any United Methodist Church as a member, you make the promises of the baptismal covenant. And we'll see this again today. Christians consider baptism to be a sacred act by which we are enfolded into the Christian life. Baptism demonstrates the covenant relationship by which God promises that we have a place in God's story And we promise to do our best to be faithful to God. We're going to revisit this in a few weeks when we share a service that focuses on sacraments. And in fact, we're going to have two baptisms here in the month of May. But right now we're talking about this in the context of church membership, which is a part of the baptismal covenant. I love the language of sacred mystery, And I affirm the impossibility of pinning down that mystery with words. But we are human beings. We do try to describe the indescribable. And the words of the baptismal covenant, including the words of the vows being taken by those entering into membership in this church, are words that try to describe the indescribable. Old words. They're words that are somewhat dense, traditional, difficult to unpack. But what if we also look at these words as poetry? I love the language of sacred mystery, and I affirm the possibility of pinning down that mystery with words. But we human beings do try to describe the indescribable. And most people, most of the time and throughout time, Understand and imagine things through stories. Stories have characters, and it is usually helpful to us when the characters have names. So we imagine sacred mystery as the protagonist of the story, the main character, and we give the sacred mystery a name. We call the mystery God. From the beginning of time, there has been God. And God has been the source of life and source of love. And in this story, there is a second primary character, or maybe the same character with another name. That name was Jesus. And this God-born character named Jesus grew up and turned things topsy-turvy. And he taught people to live the way he lived. And Jesus asks, will you come and follow me? And we respond to Jesus' invitation, and some of us say yes. Or maybe we say, well, I'll try. And that is when you, too, become a character in this story. When you say that yes, or when you say simply, well, I'll try, then you take your place in that story. And that, my friends, is the story of baptism. It is the story of baptism, and it is, yes, the response that is reaffirmed in choosing membership in a particular church at a particular time. I have said that we are invited to take our places as characters in the story I say it that way, but the language of the baptismal covenant or of church membership says it this way. Through baptism, you are incorporated by the Holy Spirit into God's new creation and made to share in Christ's royal priesthood. And I have said that when we ourselves are invited to take our place in the story, when Jesus asks you and me, Will you follow me? I've said that we say, yes, or maybe, well, I'll try. But the service of the baptismal covenant, which is also our liturgy for reception of new members, the service of baptismal covenant is liturgy and sacrament. So instead of saying, yes, or I'll try, in the service of the baptismal covenant, we say much fancier and much more complicated words. In the service of the baptismal covenant, we say we renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of our sin. We say we accept the freedom and power God gives us to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. We say we confess Jesus Christ as our Savior, put our whole trust in his grace and promise to serve him as our Lord. We say we will be faithful members of Christ's church and serve as Christ's representatives in the world. We will proclaim the good news and live according to Christ's example. Because rejecting evil and resisting injustice is the way of life we are invited to, by a character who turned conventional wisdom on its ear, and this is what, I, what it means to respond to Jesus' invitation with a yes, or even a I'll try. Now, looking at this old language, this dense theological language, one option would be to rewrite the vows of membership. Speaking of which, If you haven't already seen the rewritten versions of the Lord's Prayer that are on the bulletin in the fellowship hall right now, you really need to go take a look at those. Um, Those come out of our Monday night progressive theology group um, from a series led by uh, Jim Goss. And that's a bulletin. When you enter the fellowship hall, it's on your right. It it changes at least every month, and it offers all sorts of resources for digging deeper in your faith or learning more about themes and issues that are important in this church. So there's a little aside there. But so one option would be to rewrite the membership vows in the United Methodist Church. And from time to time, I have considered rewriting the membership vows, But on the other hand, these vows that we share in common with all United Methodist churches are some of the threads that weave us together into a body much greater than who we are as one individual congregation. So I've never been able to make up my mind to rewrite them. But whenever I gather folks to learn about church membership, we look at the vows together and talk about what they mean, and I do encourage folks to find their own interpretations, an interpretation that has authentic meaning to them. And I do this because I look at these words as just as much poetry as prose. I see them as inviting imagination more than declaring theology or doctrine. So through all the cumbersome language of our more traditional liturgies, I hope we all might see the poetry that invites us to say yes to the sacred mystery that cannot be captured in words. So by all means, believe what you see with your own eyes. But I hope your belief won't end there. I hope you will find yourself captivated by the sacred mystery that is not limited to what we see and that cannot be captured in words. I hope you might gently let go of that natural desire for certainty and in its place embrace the promise of mystery And as God invites us over and over again to take our places in the story, as Jesus again and again invites us to follow, I hope you will say yes. Amen.